0: So if we could start off, you know, that first question that was on there that we sent to you was just, uh, who are you and and why is this, like, why is this an issue that, obviously we all should care about, care about at significant levels, but I think, um, what's your story a little bit and why is this a personal thing for you?
1: Yeah, well, um, so I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona in the West Valley. Um, My mom is an immigrant from Honduras and my dad's family is, um, they came over on the Mayflower. And lived in Rhode Island from whenever that was, fourteen. Oh, there's a poem about it, right? I don't know. A long time ago. <laughs> I
2: don't know. I think there is one, yeah. up,
1: um, up until the 1970s, when they moved to Phoenix, so they lived in that little state for many, many centuries. And um, my parents, you know, got married here. I was raised here, and most of my dad's and the family was all in Rhode Island up until the last five or ten years. I, so I was raised around my mom's family and pretty early on, um, you know, just Phoenix is if you're from a Hispanic family and you grew up in Phoenix, you, you, you see the city in color, right? You're just very young. You notice the way um, immigrants are treated, um, you know, family that doesn't speak English clearly the way they're talked about. Um, whether it's in McDonald's or Taco Bell or schools um, and just, and all the dynamics related to that. Right. Um, so I think that allowed me growing up in a home where even within my home, it was pretty um, divided in terms of the ways my dad might talk about my grandma or just jokes that, um, you know, are just, just these two, these two cultures clashing. Um, and so, I remember just young being able to begin to feel some of these tensions between being in a maybe Hispanic Pentecostal church or a old school um, kind of fundamentalist-ish church, Bible, you know, all white, whatever, just, just realizing that the world is separate. We live separate lives and um, some people are, are invisible to others. And so I think then going in... So I you know, go into middle school, high school, um, and really feel a call from the Lord to uh, work with the poor and those in the margins and kind of just take off in that direction. Meet my husband in my early 20s. He was planting a church in downtown Phoenix. I joined, really wanted to be part of a, was a multi-ethnic church plant it was in the early days. I don't know if you guys know, like Luke Simmons and Aaron Daly, those are two other redemption pastors But we were all planting around, this, you know, kind of just like, in the pipe you know so this is you know many 15 years ago right um go ahead
0: no i just affirm oh, okay. it yeah those fun yeah. times
1: <laughs> yeah. so they so they were so my husband planted i was on the core team helped with the plant went to went to east africa do some church planting came back to raise money and him and i got married and so then the last 15 uh I guess 13 years has been being at roosevelt my husband's african-american um, our church is, um, you know, maybe thirty-five percent African American, twenty uh, percent Hispanic, twenty-five percent Hispanic. I don't know. Um, it's a very, very, very diverse church, um, and um, we don't have any major. There's no one culture that's majority. And then right. our and then our pastoral team now is, um, you know, our, our our staff and our leadership team is all African American um, or Hispanic. Um, and then we have one one white Presbyterian, uh, pastor in his sixties, who nice. we love. So, um, so that's now, but you know, we started as a church plant out of a um, predominantly you know, predominantly Anglo wealthy church, and we're on this journey of learning how to be multi-ethnic, what that looks like, um, be in downtown Phoenix, be a witness to Roosevelt Row, which is our arts district, um, very progressive. Um, right to the south of us, uh, yeah, very liberal, progressive. Um, you know, all the, all the um, stereotypes of you know an arts culture downtown. Down to the south of us, walking distance is a is a neighborhood called Grant Park. So that's um, where our government housing projects are and low income. So we started doing outreach there 12, 13 years ago, and so that just kind of became our ministry context, working with you know, these growing businesses and artists and helping do community development there, doing community development in Grant Park. And we and, and in our journey, um, have just really tried to figure out what does it look like to represent Jesus, you know, as a, as a diverse people. Um, and then four years ago, you know, this election happened and our multi-ethnic church kind of blew up. And so we had a lot of division, a lot of pain, a lot of tension. My husband and I had no idea how to lead through that. Um, I created plenty of problems with my lack of uh, um, my my quick my quick tongue and uh, lack of self control. And we then just began to really seek God. What does it look like to not just be a multi ethnic community, but a reconciling people? And how do we do that? What does that look like? And that's been the last four years, which you know brings us to today, which is we're in a really. I mean, it's a really hard season of ministry, um, in terms of physical exhaustion. Um, but from, from, uh, kind of the church shutting down on Sundays, uh, our worship Sundays, uh, through now, through this last 10 days, even, um, we have thousands protesting right down our street every night. Right. Um, it's just been really amazing to see the ability for us to be present as a healthy unified community, still very diverse, still lots of different opinions. Not everyone agrees there's a real sweet unity. Um, that's kind of been, been our, our journey.
0: Wow. Would you speak to, uh, so like, what are the differences you think, uh, that's kind of prepared you and the, and Roosevelt, mm-hmm. uh, and, and even you personally, right. From 2016 to 2020, you mm-hmm. know, to be in a place where, yeah, you could respond differently or even the source of the, that you see.
1: Yeah, I think there's a few things. I think um, we needed to. There, you know, I think some of it was we, you know, we were we we weren't necessarily having conversations or, or creating space where you could, in person, ask whatever you want. So hopefully tonight is one of those questions where there's no question that's you know, this is, these are the kind of spaces you want to ask those hard questions. And it might shock someone else, it might discourage someone else, but kind of being able to say, hey, we've got to be a community where we can ask these questions face to face or at the very least Zoom, you know, through Zoom rooms. Um, because there's just certain things that we're never, if, if our goal is to convince each other to agree on government policy, mm-hmm. um, we're, we're, mis- we're, we're like the rest of the world, right? Um, but at the same time we 're also not going to take a middle of the road well i 'm not right i 'm not left i 'm just kind of some lukewarm whatever like no, we actually do think god is a god of justice and love and mercy and has has called us to incarnate his love in in our streets. so we have to have positions and opinions and figure out what it looks like to um, embody this, but we hold them differently than than mm-hmm. the rest of the world and so i I just think the um, so yeah, some of it was just learning how to sit and be um, receptive to very, you know, I, I think especially if you're, if you are a minority, it's very hard to not take some of these conversations very personally and just learning how to create space and margin to rest and to go deep with God and realizing that has to be our, our sustenance and our rest. And I'm not here to change people, but I am here to be present and in relationship and sometimes that leads to drastic change other times people choose not to they don't want to be in relationship and they step away from that but um that's that's a different kind of energy than trying to convince everyone to share an opinion um so I think I think some of it was an internal shift of um, feeling freedom to stop fighting certain battles Um, but I don't want to make it sound like that means we stopped talking about hard things. If anything, it kind of gave us more freedom to say more bold things. And we, you know, some people really struggled with that and others, you know, we were able to find ways to have common ground and to say, we're a church that's going to talk about race. We're going to talk about justice. We're going to talk about the poor. We're going to talk about what it looks like to live into the gospel in, uh, this, this place, Mm -hmm. um. And that, that's just, you know, we're not going to even like nuance that. We're just, that's, that's who we are. We're going to, we're going to create space for that. So.
0: That's awesome. Um, for the people that are already on with us, you know, so like Danae said, um, you know, if you do have questions, um, the best way to just put those in the chat box that you should have there at the bottom of the screen and just kind of start populating that with questions that come up. And then we can, we'll answer some if they're directly related to what we're talking about in the moment, but if there's just questions that. Hey, I really want to ask this question about uh, this, uh, by all means, just uh, type that in there and then we'll have a time of, of Q&A uh, in a little bit after we go through some of these talking points. So again, thanks to all you guys that are joining us right now. We're thankful that you're here and part of the discussion um, and then what will come of, of the discussion as well. So uh, so then let's let's zoom in to, to 2020, um, like in the span of two weeks, right? Uh, Arbery, Cooper, uh, and Floyd, and these these videos all come out, Mm -hmm. Um, Breonna Taylor, right, all of these things happen, and outside the Taylor one, everyone's watching these videos, and it's just, it's just, it just feels, Mm -hmm. you can, you can sense it rising. Yeah. What was that like for you, right, like what was going on in in your heart, what was, what were you seeing in the church a little bit there, And, and maybe just start with that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think um, there is a, f- a few things. I think there is when when pod Aubrey's murder was kind of played played on the screen. That being the first one, I think honestly, I'll give you my my honest answer. <laughs> um, that first day, that first day, just angry and tired and you know what roosevelt we got all black staff a latina and um we say whatever we want i mean it has to be you know we want we're biblical we're a form of right. church you know we're as close theologically to redemption as possible i think and um but it's just it's kind of like you know what we're going to do our thing um i just don't think church like I just don't think the American church has the courage to do what it needs to do in this moment. And lots of angry prayers and sorrow. My oldest just graduated high school. He's a six, five African. This is a six foot five, six feet.
2: Yeah.
1: uh, Black man. He's been a man child since he was in eighth grade. And just like, this is, this isn't, this is if you're not really even at the culture, but just the church. And then, Tyler released this video, Tyler Johnson, a lead pastor of Redemption, um, confessing, and I just wept for like three straight days. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm friends with Tyler. I've been following our, you know, I've been working with our pastors for years. I, I, of any church in the nation I work with, I so value and appreciate the Redemption's role and their voice on this. Um, but to hear a white pastor publicly confess sin and slowness and caution, um, it broke me. I just felt like, wow, Lord, you are, you, um, you surprised me. And, and I, I didn't, I didn't think that even, you know, if anyone would do it, I would think it would be redemption, but I didn't even think, it never even occurred to me that that would be something that would uh, be done by a white pastor. So Vermont, my husband and I, all our, our, our whole pastoral staff got on Zoom and we watched it chills, tears. Um, yeah, it was just really meaningful. Um, so then, the weeks that followed, I think it's, it was just beginning to see, you had Brianna, that seemed to only really be noticed for the most part by the black community. Then you had um, the the New York, the Central Park story, or not Central Park, but the New York um, story. Was that Cooper?
0: Christian Cooper, um, yeah.
1: And before... Um, the next day when George Floyd's story broke, just that, that experience alone, um, I think, again, it was just a lot of lament and, and, and kind of this, like, I don't, you know, like, like the church, like, can the church really be, can God's people really continue to just be blind to this and ignore this, um, and so just a lot of prayer i mean i would say that whole week just so much prayer asking god to do something to, to do something to to break us as his people and help us to be lead. like what like why of all people are are we afraid of being guilty like why why are we working so hard to justify our our opinions yeah. or yeah. you know or yeah. um, just trying to say the right thing make the right statement so that we can you know be righteous in who, who in whose eyes i don't know it's like, why can't we just be like sackcloth and ashes, like totally broken? And then the next day, George Floyd was uh, murder plays. I actually still haven't been able—I haven't been able to watch any of these videos for the last two years, just because there's been so many of them at this point. And right. this is, you know, at, the, at some point, it's your family and it's your life, and you're like, this is, this is not news. This is the same right. thing we've been saying for eight years since. You um,
0: don't need another so, video to bring to you.
1: Yeah. So I think by the time that the I think by the time the things really broke Friday, um, with some of the, I think it started with some looting and riot and uh, rioting in Minneapolis, and then just grew into this massive global protest. I just think it's been I've just kind of one every single day I've been in awe at how God is at work. Um, people reaching out, not not the majority, but some people reaching out from years ago to ask forgiveness, to confess things that they said or ways that they gossiped. Um, like, I, I mean, just, I've never, I don't, it just feels like one of the, I don't think I've ever experienced this amount of um, confession, repentance. Mm-hmm. Not just saying that one murder, George Floyd's, was wrong. But kind of like, like, like only God, it's like, it's like a veil was lifted from a lot of people's eyes and they're saying no this has been I've been wrong all along and that's something that like leadership can't do that teaching can't do that only the holy spirit can do that and now there's other people hardening and then lots of us so I think are unsure and that's what I hope tonight anyone who's unsure I'm totally I'm not saying this hope like trying to project that this is still a safe place to bring up whatever question but I'm just trying to I'm just saying I'm just trying to process it from where I'm at and um this is a really Painful and yet holy time, in which God is—he's—he's he's digging and he's digging soil, and he's like taking some thorns and rocks out of the soil to plant something new. That I think is going to come out of this.
2: Yeah.
0: So, what time does that video? Um, you know, so it's honestly, you know, a lot of people are sharing that and things like that. We're getting more and more questions yeah. um you know, behind the why, and really the two things that rose up out of it, I think the first one was when he said, uh, there's no time to wait and see, or, you know, mm-hmm. wait for the facts uh, to get the exact quote right, and then the other one was um, what do we have to apologize for, you know?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, right. the, first so, part, the first part got cut out. Who, who
2: said
0: it? That. We, We're in Flagstaff, so we like just got internet a couple weeks ago, <laughs> so, um, so, so those two points I I think we posted from the video, right? That, that second one was, you know, why do why should we repent?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, at, you know, the white evangelical church, oh. what Tyler done wrong? You know, that type of thing. And then the other one was uh, more focused on that line of, you know, we don't have time to wait for the facts to, to mourn or to enter into this. And so, could you speak to those two things? Because I think that that has that is a big pushback. I think
1: yeah, uh, amongst many of our. Yeah, I think some of it is just, um, you know, some of it is just knowing the history of our nation, right? Like there has just been consistent, every generation, um, abuse, violence, murder towards black people. It's just, it's it's, it's never stopped happening. Like, like we act like Martin Luther King, um, you know, he, died. He was martyred. He was shot and killed. Um, and then we went, you know, then the Vietnam War and, you know, then we got to the seventies. Um, so it's not like there's ever been massive, like real brokenness over what we've done in our nation. And we pass that on like, the, like scripture is pretty clear about the, the, the curses being passed from the generation to the next. And that happens. And when we have I- I- idol worship, and we commit acts of violence towards each other, we pass those things on, whether it's oppression or victimhood, like like these the ways in which we harm each other gets passed on. And so um, the narratives, the stories, the histories, all those things are passed through family lines. And so I think that part of the why we can't wait to mourn, one is just... Um, you know, it's. I mean, it's when 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 you have a loved one who dies, you mourn. It doesn't matter the reason. We had a, uh, a you know, we had a foster kiddo who was with us for almost ten years, white 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 as can be, blonde hair, and he ended up doing something that had him facing eighteen years in jail, and, I, I mean, it was months of, pain for our family. I mean, crying every i mean 18 years for an 18 year old to be in prison like i mean it was it was probably a whole year of just i don't know even know what to call it depression sorrow loss i mean i don't it it didn't matter what he had done to lose his life was was painful right when you love someone i think you so i think if you translate that to when you have a consistent attack um in one sense it doesn't matter um murder you know or life being taken um is just if you, you lament it you, you weep over it um but I, I think there's the added challenge of uh black and brown communities haven't had the same experience with police officers right so it's not to say that there aren't di- you know different i mean there's not, not the sense that, that there's like a monolithic you know there's. There's African-American, Hispanic police officers. Um, right. I mean, it's, it's, it's a system. It's not so much the individual police officer, but it's a system in which you're taught to be afraid and that, and that your presence, your body, is scary to people. And so, and so when you're in a system that's designed in a way that's, that's retrib- retributive versus restorative, and you know your body is scary to people, um, and you ha- have the, the historic you know your, the history of um, a police force being used against your family. you don't start with a, like well let's just see if the officer was justified in doing this. It's like right. no, like we're used to excessive force and um, rules being bent and people being covered you know people covering things. And so in some ways it's almost like there's just two different. There's two different sides. You know, which one are you going to, um, you know, is this, is this really, when, when someone you love dies, are you, you know, waiting for the incident report to come out about the car accident, giving you the details of whose fault it was, or are you just, like, broken that someone died? And then when you add on to that the layers of injustice um, that, that have just continued, you know, year after year after year after year to happen, and we continue to have African-American brothers and sisters tell us, this is not abnormal, this is normal, this is what it was like to grow up in our communities, this is what it was like, you know, I think the problem is, you know, when you get into, um, like, like anything, it's so systemic, there isn't one simple easy solution or pat answer, and so I think for people who, who want to solve problems, they want to know where do you cast the blame and how do you fix it, um, but that doesn't take away the fact that there is continued uh, loss of life. In, in black communities.
0: Yeah, do you think I think what one of the thing's where I think we are hearing quite a bit right now is because there there seems to be um, a handful of videos that are that are being shared uh, frequently that, that would take kind of a, a different approach and a different angle to most of what you just said. Mm-hmm. Um, and and one of the things that comes up often in those videos is the statistics point to something different. Um, and, and I know you're not a statistician, um, but could you talk to and speak to some of that? Um, you know, cause I, I think that's just something that gets used quite a bit.
1: So my husband, I'm sitting at his desk and Vermont has like 200 books right here in front of me on uh, police policing and police brutality and statistics. He would be awesome to talk about this at some point. Um, because going back to Trayvon Martin, he started doing all his own research and could probably get a doctorate at this point if he wanted. Um, so I'll just tell you what I, my layman's, my layman's understanding is there's, there's two ways of looking at this. One, there's national, there's just national stats and national news. And the reality is when people, um, so, you know, one of the things I talked about a lot is black on black crime. Well, there's actually more white on white crime. And the reason is because people tend to commit crime against the people they live next to. And our cities are, are racially divided and segregated. And so you're going to tend to, it's your neighbors that you're tending to commit crime against. And so yes, there's black on black crime because we have mostly all black neighborhoods. But there's actually more white on white crime because there's more white people in our nation. And, um, they also live segregated. Does that make sense? So that's yeah. one, just simple answer. Locally, and I, I don't fully know what, what videos you're talking about, Vince. So you can, if I'm if I'm off track, you can you can correct oh, uh, me world. more. Perfect. Okay. Um, and then and then I think I think again, part of the problem for Christians is we were never called to I don't think go to our computers and just rely on research and stats, but to we're, we're in we we have been an incarnational God has come to us with the good news and put his spirit in us to then go be an incarnational people. So we, most of what I know is not through books. Um, My husband has the book brain. For me, it's mostly through living life with people and being in our neighborhoods in South Phoenix that are African-American, lots of relationships intentionally fostered with all, you know, different friends from all different socioeconomic statuses who are black, um, hiring people from Hispanic neighborhoods and hearing about their houses being raided and watching how immigration happened, at different seasons. um, You know, uh, how the, uh, not the, the ICE, um, I'm drawing a blank right now on what it's, what it stands for, but the MPOs, you know, like how, how different seasons and different, um, you know, political seasons gets different apartments rated, and being at a friend's house and seeing stuff happen. Like, I just think some of it is, there's two ways to look at it. One is nationally in the stats and you can make, I mean, there's there's endless statistics over the last century related to what has happened from law enforcement towards African-Americans. and it's not—it's not hard to find good, you know, good information. But you can also embed yourself into relationship and communities, and just watch over five to ten years. And I don't think you'll be surprised if, if, if you're if you're going to get to know what people's experiences are are like.
0: Yeah, it often feels that there's there is a significant uh, proximity issue. You know, like it, there's such a distance, uh, especially relationally, at any level where. You know, oftentimes I feel like I'm in I'm in some conversations right now that are that are very much like, hey, well, what about this? And there's this statistic, and you know, statistics are always tough when it comes to like which way you're going to interpret it and how you're going to, you know, look at it from different angles and things. But it often comes to like, but what about you know, literally? I mean, within Redemption, the hundreds and thousands of stories that we have of people that you can know simply by like when we when you go to church on Sunday. These are people that are your brothers and sisters. These are people that like we know as right, like these are people in your sphere yeah. and, and, uh, I, and I would
1: a- say one of the things that's really helpful is to start reading American history and you read um, you read African American preachers going back to the seventeen, late seventeen hundreds, for sure through the eighteen hundreds, definitely in the early nineteen hundreds, definitely in the sixties. They are arguing against these exact. These aren't even new. Like, what about black on black crime? What about this or what about that? Or do we know the facts? These are actually the exact same things that, for we have at least 150 years of um, African American theologians, professors, scholars um, articulating like really good, reasonable explanations. Um, We've inherited those things, you know. It, 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 it's not unsimilar from being a female and knowing that when you communicate, um, when when women communicate a story of abuse, there for, for the most part, there's there, you can almost count that if you tell five people, three are probably going to say, "Well, what was she wearing that night? Or what? Well, what did you do? Or did you drink too much?" Right? Um, that that we kind of culturally have embedded into into our our way of listening and understanding each other like i i that can't possibly be true right mm-hmm. and so i think what you're saying is true vince and i think one of the things that was really discouraging to me i think leading up to really until tyler sent his video uh a few months ago or i don't know it's all, it's all a blur at this point <laughs> I know, it's, it's, <laughs> so much has, happened, say, yeah. much has happened um was like watching So I'm so proud, I've I've been so proud of our churches in Phoenix making progress, especially working nationally, Just I've been so proud, and yet I've had this low-grade discouragement, especially as I read uh, our preachers over the last 150 years, and I think we have not, we are saying that we are making the same exact excuses as we made 100 years ago, and we made well in the 70s, and we, you know and i think waking up to that realizing man there there has not really been a moment of real true confession and repentance and change behavior and tra- change structures and so that's probably where i'm hopeful right now i think where that is able to happen i think we can do it individually i think you, we can say okay what are my normal what are the normal thought patterns that and and did I inherit any of those in my childhood or as a you know as a grant you know did I inherit any normal way of listening that makes it hard to hear the, the voices of people who've experienced oppression and injustice um and then what does it look like to ask the spirit of God to unstop our ears so we can hear the cries of those who 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 for the most part society drowns out and doesn't hear
0: Right. Yeah, that's big. That's really big. Um, just, to, I know there's been a handful of you that have jumped on uh, since last time I said this, but um, again, feel free to start um, populating the, the chat box with questions that you'd have uh, for today or just obviously around this topic. And um, again, we'll answer those as we go. And then also there'll be some Q&A later. So if you have something, feel free to, to toss that in there. Um, this is a question we've been, we've been asking a, a lot of people, especially people we want to learn from like yourself of, because one one of the things we keep hearing is like this is right this is a social issue, mm-hmm. this is social justice, this is social gospel um and we we just need to preach we just need to preach the gospel, right like just preach jesus and so two two parts of that one is speak to that as a as a general pushback, and then also then, could you take us to a scripture or two that for you is is just forming i think and, and should form the church right now? in a real robust kind of theological vision for what justice looks like for us.
1: Yeah. So, um, I do think that I, I, I wish there was someone who on here who I could have that conversation. I love having that conversation right now. Um, because here, here's maybe some of the things I would, I would want to know from someone who says just preach the gospel, so, you know, just, just the heart, we need heart change. This is a heart, a heart issue is one, I just wonder, like, what does that mean, right? So, if our hearts are changed, like, I'm assuming the person telling me that has had a changed heart, right? So, so if they have had a changed heart because the gospel has um, done the work that needed to happen, how is their life contributing to bringing about shalom or peace between people who have divisions and hostility? Because saying just preach, you know, don't don't do all that social justice stuff, just go about making sure hearts change that doesn't seem to be helpful to lynching of black people, right? Like as, I mean, people walked by, like, like we have to understand that for a decade, church members walked by lynched bodies on trees and took pictures and passed around tokens. They would pull stuff off the body and pass it around, bring their kids to see the lynched bodies on the way to and from church. Like that, that, this is like easy to find American history. So if, right. and those are people who like, yeah, who were maybe were grandparents of ours who seem to really like be good Sunday school teachers. So, right. so what do we mean when we say the gospel changes hearts? If, if, if the heart change doesn't lead to us mm-hmm. having the capacity to represent the shalom, the peace, the hope of Jesus, in the midst of people who are suffering severely, if we're too afraid to enter into the work of justice for our own safety, well, yeah, I think we need the gospel preached to our hearts to give us that courage, but like it, it, it should bear fruit in keeping with repentance fruit that looks like a repentant life. So, um, I would also say, um, you know, I mean, there's so many scripture and, um, I don't even know which one to start with, but, um, I would say, you know, even there's also just the reality of like, some of this stuff is just love God, love neighbor. Um, you don't have to actually be a Christian. I mean, sadly, it's not necessarily Christians who've been most helpful in the last five to eight years to, uh, Mm -hmm. African American and Hispanic people having healthier, safer, more equitable lives. Um, if anything, a lot of Christians have been opposed to it publicly and resistant and so, um, I will probably rather have ten non-Christians helping uh, extend the chances of my 18 year old's life um, than a Bible study, right? Like I'm a mom. I want him to like have a life a long life with her. so that doesn't mean he doesn't that we don't need to like preach the gospel, but it's just it's just a piece. I think the other is you know goheen Michael Goheen talks about in being systemic. Um, it's not just individual, but individuals create systems and structures, and, um, and those last way longer than any one human life. And so anyone who's been involved in like the foster care world, it's a, that's a simple example. No one would claim to think that the foster care system is a healthy, flourishing, functioning system. And the system no. makes wonderful caseworkers do crazy things. Like I mean, these are good people who went to ASU and you know, twenty-three year olds who had big dreams of helping abused kids, and then they have caseloads of fifty people, and they make errors, and kids die. Um, No one, no one who's been involved in foster care would say, "Oh, well, you know, the system doesn't need to be reformed, right?" No, because we love the caseworkers, because we love the kids, because we love the foster parents and the birth parents. It needs reformation. It's no different with any other system. They're human. They're broken. We're not gonna make them perfect in this lifetime. But the power of the gospel is to give us the, the capacity to enter into suffering and challenges with okay. the hope and, and, to, and to be salt, right? To make it a little, a, little, a little less painful, a little more light in dark places. And so, um, you know, and then I would say, I think sometimes the way we talk about the gospel, we only think of it as not being guilty, right? So I was a sinner. I believed in Jesus, converted. I'm no longer guilty, right? But that's kind of like, like I don't only want my kids to not um, go to jail, right? Like, of course I don't want them to go to jail, but I don't spend much time thinking, I hope my kids don't go to jail. Like I spend most of my time thinking about, the, 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 about being grandma and, the fut- and their future of these flourishing lives. When, my 18, when our, our foster son ended up doing a year in jail, And when he got out, um, I mean, I'm so thankful that he didn't have to do those extra 17 years, right? And so there is, there is, the gospel does um, free us from the slavery of sin. But, but like, if I then hugged him and then didn't see him for the next three years, it was like, no, I want to actually welcome him into the fellowship of our family and for him to experience the gifts of his six-year-old and 16-year-old, boss, you know, uh, cousins, what he calls them, like I, I, I want so much more than him just to not be guilty. I want him to have life. And that's what God wants for us. And there is good, good, good life in doing the work of justice and mercy. Um, you see Jesus in ways you wouldn't. And and then lastly, I'll say I've seen more. Um, I've had more chances to talk, I, to talk about the gospel in the last 11 days than 15 years of ministry. And that's not because I haven't talked about it for 15 years. It's because dozens upon dozens of people who don't know Jesus are coming to protest with me. They're watching pastors do things that they're saying they're scared of. They're watching peacemaking happen. Um, They're, they're entering into, you know, they're going on these marches and showing up to black churches singing, break every chain in the name of Jesus, right in front of crowds of 3000 people. Um, I have a cousin who came to faith, like, that I've been talking to for a decade, like, like, this is, this is, this is, like, like, you are demonstrating and bearing witness to the power of the gospel to not just save a soul from hell, but to actually break into hell on earth. And the gospel is that powerful, it can break into hell on earth and bring light and peace. And that's what that's what justice is about. On the other side, I would say, there is, there is also the reality that justice isn't salvation. And so I'm not, I, my energy is not trying to bring about, I want equity and I want justice and I want to see mercy, but that isn't going to fully happen until Jesus returns. And so my work is, is how do we give foretastes of it? How do we give windows into it? How do we sit in the brokenness and have capacity to sit in more brokenness and be more light? um that that justice isn't our salvation um or our healing and we're not and we can't in our own we're not like until jesus returns things will continue to um to be painful and difficult but that's a great invitation to meet jesus in in, in those spaces um go ahead Vince.
0: well just saying you know i think like I, i just love what you led with, right? Because oftentimes that the second thing you brought up, like that's the lead, the lead foot of, yeah, it's it's not going to be perfect, you know. So this side of heaven, this is just going to happen, you know. It's it's similar to, uh, you know, when the Lord says, well, there will always be the poor among you, which gets tossed out quite a bit, but then doesn't realize that right after that said, it says, so go serve and feed the poor, you know. Um, and so I just that that narrative is really frustrating amongst. Know, to have, it. if I'm honest, just because it's the scriptures just are, are so replete with this intentional movement because we're not there yet, not in spite of it, you know. So, yeah,
1: I would say if you even think about the parables, you know, Jesus um, surrounds himself with the poor and margins and then invites the powerful and wealthy to follow him also, but they have to do it by being willing to move through the crowd of people that. They think are unclean, unwanted, and then when he's surrounded by the powerful, he do, he goes out of his way to bring attention to the woman who's bleeding, or to children, or it's to like prostitutes, right? Because they aren't in a space where they can. When he's surrounded by power, he can speak. You know, the the um, the the widow's offering, right? Like no one's noticing that woman in that space, but Jesus does, and he brings everyone's attention to it as an illustration, and so. I think one of the things that I wish I could communicate more uh, articulately is that entering into into spaces with people who are experiencing oppression and pain and suffering or poverty or violence is this i, I don't i mean you you get to see Jesus visibly in ways you you won't otherwise, and so the poor, if anything. When Jesus says, I was the sick, I was the lame, or I was, the, I was in prison, I was hungry, I was thirsty. Like, I, I, I think when we, the poor is Jesus among us, and we have an opportunity to encounter him in ways that we wouldn't otherwise. It's not to say that the poor are more righteous, just because they're poor. But there's something about um, having everything stripped from you, that when you get to have equal relationship with people who are suffering, that you learn about God that you wouldn't otherwise. And so I think one of the tragic things about that statement is what are we trying to, we're, like when we say that, what are we trying to get off, off the hook from? Knowing Jesus more? Um, mm-hmm. Suffering? Um, what is it? you know? What, or when we try to enter in and we work so hard to fix it, and it burns us out spiritually and we and we question our faith, you know why? Why? What are we trying to fix? Why are we trying to? Why are we taking it on our own to fix something that Jesus has said is a invitation to encounter Him? And so, as we're working, you know, very much on trying to fix laws, we've been, you know, and and address that. It's 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 not without hope. Um, our ho- it's it's uh. it's intentional. It's purposeful, but it's also that our hope is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that He will one day. Um, make all things new and he will judge us um, for how how where we were present and where we weren't and uh, thankfully you know God is a merc- merciful God and I don't think we have to um, you know we don't live in fear um, or and we don't operate out of guilt but there's just this abundant life waiting on the other side of that that fence where I think society pushes. People away that we don't want to see or hear.
0: Yeah, that's super good. Okay. Um, so here's you know a few questions that um, you know I here. I think Stephen actually just put something up in the Zoom chat. So let's let's just jump over that if we could, and then uh, we'll, we'll just get to whatever we got here next. So Stephen, hey man, good to see you. Thanks for asking question. Uh, he says I find myself consistently. A sophomore especially in the conversations around systemic racism um, do you have any advice on engaging family and friends who don't see systemic racism as, as a problem
1: yeah well first um i can't see stephen i don't is this picture showing um, it's
0: not. we, we kind of we uh made it so no, can no, I ask
1: no,
2: what no. Ethnicity?
1: What? yeah yeah
0: yeah. here <laughs> i'm gonna get him going here stephen pop your video on bro all
1: right great um so first, I would just say, I think, honestly, for white people to take on their own families is a huge gift. Um, it makes a huge, huge difference to brothers and sisters who've been at this for a really long time. So thank you for taking that on. Because, you know, one of the things that really burned out, five years ago, we started having a lot of our African American pastors in the Valley uh, and some Hispanic pastors sit in our living room. And... Um, it was, I mean, it was, it was, people were burned out from the freshman, it's, it's different to have a sophomore conversation on race when you've lived it in every room you go. Um, and so when you have uh, white brothers and sisters who are willing to take on those conversations, it, it's, a, it's a huge gift. So thank you for doing that. I would say there's a couple things I'm noticing that I'm just going to kind of talk and I'll, get, I'll send you guys some resources afterwards. But one thing is, um, you know, pretty quickly after George Floyd it's murder played. I start seeing all these young white people say, "If you're a racist, unfriend me right now. I don't want to see you on my Facebook." Right? Um, that's not really helpful. Like, don't unfriend people um, if you're if you've been you know if you if you've been in these conversations. If if you are a person of color and you're in these conversations all the time, you can do whatever you want. But if you're you know if you've only been like angry about racism for two years, like you got like three more generations to go. So let's just. uh, try to develop the tolerance to like stay and engage and ask questions and you know, move it for, Hey, this Facebook conversation got really crazy. I'm calling you and, and let's talk for an hour. So I do think that as exhausting as it is, um, and it is exhausting is what we need people to, especially younger people to do right now with their parents, grandparents, siblings to go to engage. Cause you can do it in a way that um, as it, whether it's tiring or not, or you're helpful or not, is just less costly and eroding to uh, than it is to your brothers and sisters um, who have been living this for a long time. Two, I would say, you know, be really curious, like like enter in as a student also. So the other thing that I notice sometimes is unhelpful is when someone um, takes on a posture, and and I'm saying this, anyway, I'm the chief of sinners. This is part of the challenge I had when I first started in ministry was taking on an expert, like, well, let me, you know, like being self-righteous because I knew I was right, and I still think I was right, (laughs) but I didn't need to be self-righteous about it. And when you, and I think there's no more dangerous time to be prideful and self-righteous than when you know you're on God's side, Mm and justice and being against racism is something God is for sure against, but that doesn't get us off hook on our posture. So one of the things we've talked a lot about is, you know, as a church or things that we're trainings we do is like nonviolent communication. Um, What what does that look like? How do we equip ourselves to do that really well? Because that can win people over. Uh, Vince could probably, you know, it's been a long time, but if I like, you know, my Facebook platform is pretty intentionally um, winsome and subversive. So um, I start by confessing my own I just try to get really in touch with my own fears, my own concerns, and lead with that. So I think there's ways you can really use social media to be a little subversive um, by just being humble and not taking a posture of self-righteousness while while still speaking truth. Um, I think doing book studies are really, really good, and that's a way to keep it from being exhausting. But, hey, you know, crazy uncle who keeps posting um, really racist stuff, Like, I like. I'm sending you a book, Color Compromise. Let's read a chapter every week and talk about it, and just do it. And it's it's costly. Who wants to do that? No one wants. I mean, I don't want to spend my Fridays talking about the color compromise with my crazy white uncle. Um, But just you know, do that. Like if those kind of things, um, you have to move it into conversation and educate yourself by bringing them on the journey with you, as opposed to. feeling like you have to become an expert so that you can then go represent the side, you know, I don't know if that makes sense, but, you know, read a, read an article with a friend. Um, and by the way, non-Christians too, like you don't have to just do this with Christians. You can take your coworkers on, you know, to Christian, there's nothing more evangelistic right now than reading African-American, African-Americans over the last hundred years. I mean, my, most of the, the most powerful conversations I've had with my, um, of white new agey anti-church friends is like let's just go to the spirituals let's go to the let's go to like religious texts from the black, early black church history i mean you can't argue with it you know like there's nothing not, i mean there's nothing that there's their their life is just remarkably embodies their message and um and so this is actually i mean it's a really great time to take on friends who don't know the gospel and say hey I'm um, you and my journey let's read a book together let's talk about this stuff what hope does Jesus bring into this messy thing? I feel guilty about that. I don't know how to handle this. Here's how I'm processing that um, in my prayer. Like, those are very simple ways to, like, engage with people who don't know the gospel. But, like, right now, everyone wants to understand. I mean, Amazon. I mean, everyone's talking about this stuff, right? So it's a really good open door. Um, but, yeah, I'll send you guys. We may, Vince, we posted a next steps list uh, last week. And there's books, there's a book resource list on there, um, maybe uh, some podcasts, things like that. But I would just, I just want to guard, I just want to free you from any sense, especially if you're wired this way, um, free you from any sense of feeling like you have to become an expert to advocate and use your, your freshman, sophomore, or kindergarten understanding. Uh-huh. And be curious, and just invite family and friends into that, and they'll and them seeing a humble posture is. I think it's the only thing I've seen break down walls. I haven't seen, I've yet to see, my self righteous punkness ever pierce through any uh, <laughs> anything. It's fun. Yeah. It's fun sometimes, but it's it's, it's not very godly.
0: Right. Um, yeah, that's Steve. I should point out. So that book we mentioned that last week, actually, Denae uh, So Tisby's Color of Compromise. Um, I had a I had a family member pick it up actually this week, and uh, and and she started reading it, and um, and I said, well, "What are you thinking about it?" And she uh, she would consider herself a Christian, um, and uh, and so she said, "I I hate it," and I I said, "Oh wow." Uh, And but she hated it because she's like, I didn't know any of this, you know, and Mm -hmm. so it's just, there's so much, um, so much learning that needs to happen. And, you know, and like, I I agree with you, like, I'm mass woefully ignorant um, Mm on so much. And uh, I think, again, just to reaffirm that like inviting people into the learning process um, is like a real beautiful option. And I just love that. Um, I'll say this too. If, if everyone, I, I kind of like this view more. I didn't know this is the first time we tried the Zoom thing. It might even just be nice if you are comfortable with just kicking on your video, just so Danae can even see some faces.
1: I, I haven't showered since COVID started, so you know, <laughs> no judgment on your appearance.
3: Um, you're, gonna have, you're gonna have to watch me eat nachos, Ben. <laughs> yeah, buffalo chicken dip. So forgive the chewing. <laughs> yes.
2: Yeah.
1: The other thing I would say to the people who deny systemic racism is we've been at these conversations, some of us, really intentionally. I mean, it was happening, like, you know, we always talked about it behind closed doors. But We've been talking about it with white friends since Trayvon Martin. That's when, that's when I remember, that's when Redemption really stood out to me as a church because it was a few that had white pastors start calling my husband and say, hey, like, Like, you know, and and then really did their own work and and learning. And, um, and of course, you know, Ricardo and Vince and, you know, other pastors and leaders have been so, so helpful in that, in that process. Um, And I think after eight years, I don't think the goal is to convince people on systemic racism. I think the best tactic to take right now, if people are pretty oppositional about it, is to be really curious. Like you can't get angry that people don't see it. Um, you can. It, it just doesn't actually help us bring about change. You can enter deeper into conversations. If you do feel angry about it to the point where you're sinning in your language or your words, like confess that. Like, like you can still come back to someone. There's been so many times that I've come back to people and said, hey, I don't disagree with anything I said, about race or politics or police or whatever, but my posture was totally ungodly, and that—that that is just a powerful way to open up conversations. Um, you know, I'm, uh, you know, confessing. Um, being, you know, when someone's really resistant, they don't see it, they can't see it. They're waving their Confederate flag in South Carolina to be able to say, "Hey, I'm really curious." Like you say, you're a Christian. You know that's hurtful to people. Like, how do? You, like, I'm really curious. Where is? Where is? Why? Why are you so adamant about that? Where is that coming from? Um, I don't. You know, I think the people who want to be convinced on systemic racism, you'll you'll know that earlier on. They're they're going to want to read with you and understand more. They're going to be disruptive. They're going to be able to admit that they don't that they just didn't don't know a lot and are insecure. And you know, we had a woman who. Um, well, yeah, yeah. They're they're going to be able to say, "I'm afraid to ask these questions. I don't want to be considered a racist." Um, you know, th- those are the people you can, you can walk with and journey with. Um, if they're just resistant and, and blind, just be really curious as what's what's going on inside of them. What are they What are they afraid of? What are they worried about? And sometimes that sometimes that is a different way in which God um, over time softens soil. And then and then, sorry. Lastly, I'll say. And then sometimes you have to have boundaries. like we have family members who um, four years ago began to start seeing our kids way less to not at all. Um, And it didn't start that way. Um, But there's lots and lots and lots and lots of conversations. But the reality is there's there's some points that you're like, hey, I need you to be able to be respectful about human beings um, for the sake of our city in our country and our world and if you're not going to be um you can't exercise that kind of self-control we have to think about a different thanksgiving dinner and those are not easy conversations um, or easy places and they're certainly not easy to do in a way that's not um you know harmful or divisive um but to think about how do you do those and reconcile in ways that are act you know kind of like a church discipline thing like you're doing it in hopes that the person will repent and staying open to it, not, not being a victim of their, of their behavior, but like really wanting to set a table for them to go deeper and be repentant. Um, those are all things I think, unless you're deep in prayer and community, it's almost impossible to, to know how to do because it requires um, so much relational wisdom.
0: Yeah, one thing that, if I could add to that, that it's been interesting to kind of navigate is through. There, it does feel like there's a significant, like a legitimate, significant amount of uh, that fear plays into where people are at with this conversation, and so um, where where your voice, uh, w- when you could be so bold and so confident, and and like the way the Lord loves you and sees you, that you'd be willing to kind of take on some of that. Um, that, that your voice kind of opens up the room a bit. And and so just having these moments where, um, you know, I've been in circles where, okay, I've said something or someone said something and all of a sudden the room that felt like everyone was against this idea all kind of said, okay, actually, I, I think that as well. And you begin to kind of root out some of this in people that some of what's there um, is just being trapped by some of this fear, some of the emotional aspects of this. That, that honestly, I think God in his power unlocks through vulnerability and through honesty and, and boldness and integrity, kind of all in the midst of that as well. And so, um, it's just a great question. Um, Katie, if we can pivot to you, uh, man, just Katie, this is Danae. Danae, this is Katie. Katie's just been, she was up here in Flagstaff, but she's actually in New York City now. Um, and so, she's uh, incredible. But why don't you just ask her a question? Um, and just read it, so I don't read it because that's just weird for me to do with you
2: right there. <laughs> yeah, I'll read it. Um, hi, everyone. I uh, I'm also like trying to make something out of play right now, so if that bothers anyone, just let yeah. me know. Um, it's just. Katie, I- cute. I- hi. Hi, Andy. I texted you, but you didn't text me back. Um,
1: oh, this I- is awkward. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna mute myself again.
2: <laughs> um. So I just recently heard a pastor just kind of with the old, you know, I don't see color um, kind of mentality and just in general, uh, having grown up in, you know, predominantly white and, um, you know, for lack of a better word, more kind of conservative um, churches with that mentality, I guess just feeling discouraged on how to approach conversations um, like that with people who have so much, you know, more wisdom than me in, like, a lot of areas, I'm sure, you know, of studying Scripture and the Bible and, you know, but just have that viewpoint. Um, So maybe kind of similar to the previous question, but, you know, just specifically, you know, what would you say, I guess?
1: Yeah, I think, um, you know, people mean well when they say that. I think what they're—I know what they're trying to say. um, It's not logical or humanly possible. You know, it's like saying I don't, I don't recognize that you're a woman, you know, like, I, I just see men and women as a blob of genderless nothing, like, it's just not, it's just, it's just not true, right? Like, so I think, I think on that one, I mean, we have some people in our church who've said that over the years, even, even leaders, and um, I always express, I don't think that's helpful, um, especially right now with, 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 you know, a leader in the church who say that, I will say, you know, right now it, I mean, it's just the outcry from African-American pastors and leaders all over the nation for the last few years has been very consistent. So even if that's true, is it possible for you to try to sit and listen a little bit to black pastors, um, and just, and just try to try to maybe take some time to understand why that's not a helpful statement. I don't feel the need to, yeah, to convince them otherwise, um, but I try to point people to mentors and leaders, you know, people, to, if, they're, if they're readers, books to follow, if they're on Twitter, you know, follow these 10 voices and just say, hey, can you just listen? Um, Be the Bridge is a really great, great resource. I encourage every church to think about doing that or getting those handbooks. Um, Latasha Morrison, Um you know, just in pointing leaders to like, you know, I just, I just don't think it's helpful. Um, and and right now, I actually think it could be very harmful to our witness, our evangelistic witness, to make statements like that. And so, you know, I I try to kind of take more of that approach and just point people to do the, to do their homework. Thank yeah. you so
2: much. That's yeah. So helpful.
0: Katie, yeah, I'll add to that just as being look pastors we are a, we are a fragile bunch at times and uh you know so you know honestly like for, like what they're saying just even framing things even in this space as like a question you know of just like hey like what do you what do you think about this you know and because there is just a re, there's a dynamic there of and especially I'm 36 so I'm on the younger end of probably that that you know pastor spectrum but especially when you get into some of these you know older pastors that have been you know been run the race and trying to do it faithfully for years and 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 that you know they've they're used to being right or you know being right and, and being authoritative and and so i think some of that is it's not posturing it's just trying to like how do we get to a place where they can hear and i can hear you know and so um i think even just when you, when you start nabby like Hey, can you help me with this? You know, or something like that. Even and as pandery as that sounds, I just I just know us, and we are again we are a, a fickle, proud little, little nebulous of a people. So, um, but that's this really helpful. Um, so, today, so there's uh, a few, uh, so there's a heavier question, and um, that I'd love to to hear from you on, um, and it is it is. Kind of goes into and Ram, we'll, we'll circle back to that if that's okay. But um, around policing and 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 just that perspective, it is very heightened. And I know you guys have uh, police officers and, and law enforcement officers in your community um, at Roosevelt, people you love, and there is this um, this growing chasm between. Uh, not just the black community and and law enforcement, but it, it now seems like there's this great divide that's growing uh, between our nation in many ways. And so now you get this. You, we've heard "Blue Lives Matter" for a while, um, but there's definitely, I think, a growing sentiment amongst the Christian community, especially of, hey, this this has gone too far. And, mm-hmm. and can you speak to just some of that because? it's it, it seems like it's growing as a significant hotbed of an issue that is clouding a conversation that must be had and it just goes to but what about what about vegas what about you know these stories and so i know that's a lot it's kind of mm-hmm. too but i would love to just hear your thoughts on that yeah so one
1: thing is i so i'll talk about it in a- maybe from a few different angles. Um, One would be just policing is, um, again, there's police officers. My oldest is getting ready to be a Marine and then wants to come back and be a police officer. Um, In large part from watching this, you know, he was maybe seven or eight when Trayvon Martin unfolded um, after being in foster care Um, at seven. uh, He still says it's like, it's funny. I don't think it's funny, but no, at six and a half, he was put in handcuffs for the first time in uh, Las Vegas uh, messing around at a Circle K um, and a police officer pretended to arrest him, um, you know, wanted to scare him. Um, You know, that's kind of normal. That's not abnormal when you're growing up in the hood, right? Um, So I think that police officer was a very, I mean, let me just use my imagination, was probably a, a kind man who wanted to help a kid not get arrested someday at 16 or 17. Um, So I don't think, I don't think the individuals always within a system intend for harm to happen. And it's a system. It's, it's, you know, it's kind of like you have those friends who've left the church and they make these blat, you know, a lot of my evangelism was with people who are de-churched who grew up in it and left. And a lot of my relationships are that. And they make these blanket statements that are like, that's maybe 80% true. But 20 percent, really. I mean, really, like, not. It's not possible for every single person to be that way within the evangelical church, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like when you're part of a collect, a tribe, or a group or a system, um, it's just, it's so it's so nuanced and so complex. And so so when the talking points paint Black Lives Matter as being anti-police, well, there's police officers that are part of Black Lives Matter. We've got police officers in the city who's Facebook profile right now is Malcolm X. That's not that's not like an unintentional statement, right? While they're doing riot duty um, down, you know, in the riot gear downtown, like so. um, So I'll say, you know, the history of policing. Policing was started um, to catch runaway slaves. It is a it is a um, retributive system versus a restorative system. There's other parts of the world that do policing differently. There's models, there's options, community policing um, is very effective, and when Phoenix has done it, it's been really, really helpful. And there's all kinds of reforms that could happen, right? So I... I, Go ahead.
0: Could you clarify on community policing?
1: Yeah. So it depends. Again, everything's a spectrum, right? So um, one of the things that we've advocated for for a long time in Phoenix, and it's happened at different seasons, is putting money into a community, like a neighborhood like South Phoenix, and then that that community hiring people from that neighborhood to police themselves, and then you have a community police officer who's there, who's helping train, equip, coach, uh, shows up at the schools and talks to the kids and um, gets to know the neighbor, you know knows the neighborhood inside and out. You know we know statistically police officers um, who only do night shift in a neighborhood they don't know, versus the same police officers who only do day shift have a night in, when you ask them to describe the neighborhood that they're in. It's night and day different, right? So there's psychologically, you know, you, you're um, one of the big statements this, this week has been, you know, barbers need more hours of training than police officers currently need in Phoenix, legally. You can, you can become a police officer with less hours of training, um, which as a mother of an 18-year-old senior who just graduated from high school, that's ter- it's terrifying to me to think about him around the streets with a gun. <laughs> he can't even do his laundry yet, right? Like... Um, but he could be in a year. And so I just think there is, there is like, there, none of the, I, I don't think it's a fair um, assumption that people who are advocating um, for black lives uh, to matter in our public policy and in our policing um, to be anti-police. Um a lot of the reforms that we've been working on, you know, a lot of times these protests were do You know, we use the masses, the masses of people on the streets to help push through reform. Like, let's get police officers off of our high school campuses. They don't need police officers on our high school campuses. That that's a lot of money that can be spent in 20 other areas that can still help provide a lot of safety on our on our campuses. So, you know, there, there's all these things that can be done, um, and it's dangerous for the police to feel like they're a tribe uh, that never goes well in human history or world history when law enforcement feels a sense of solidarity with each other mm-hmm. um, because they do have it, right? They are a brotherhood, but their brotherhood, uh, a pastor last week um, was, you know, we've been having these African-American pastors go preach to the police before the protests start. And they're like, we just need you to, to, to put your, your brotherhood second to the human brother. We need you to join our brotherhood first and then put yours second. It's it's and I think I think being able to think about it much more um you know if you're a christian law enforcement officer how do you live in the tension of your profession being oppressive at times and having members of your 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 family or your your tribe that do things that are really grievous um and how do you live in the tension of that and then be distinctly different that you don't just turn a blind eye that you speak up, that you push for reform. And it's costly, it is costly uh, to do that when you're in a group dynamic. And so, yeah, I would say, um, you know, early on, uh, family of law enforcement really had a hard time at our church. Um, felt like it was, yeah, But this is probably four or five years ago that it's police versus people of color, um, you know. But I think one of my favorite Sundays was we had a guy who's a um, border patrol agent Standing next to an undocumented worker, and they're taking communion together, and that to me is like they don't. I mean, they're strong disagreements. They're brothers and sisters in Christ, and can we not just sweep under the rug her status and his vocation? But can we? Can that brother sisterhood actually be a stronger bond um, than the group that, that the group that he represents? So I just think I don't. I don't know if I'm answering your question. I mean. I'm not an expert on policing. I've done a lot of grassroots, like, I've not, I haven't done it. I have followed uh, community organizers and African-American pastors who've been doing this work for a while in our community. And I would, I would say there's a lot, a lot of changes that could be made, um, but it's one of many systems. You know, We're talking, I mean, racism, the soil in which America was plant, planted all our seeds was soil of slavery. White supremacy, white power, our structures, our systems, um, our wealth, our neighborhoods, our city plans. I mean, it's it's 400 years in the making, and it doesn't just get, um, you you know, it, it, it isn't getting ended overnight. And so part of the work to do is to be able to be un- to understand how to address it in the whatever sphere, our own vocation. So, you know, if you're a teacher, whatever, wherever you're at, what does it look like to resist the, the current that pushes things a different way.
0: Yeah. One of the things, um, you know, we will talk, so we, yeah, three, 400 years of of constantly building the society, mm-hmm. this direction, um, which led to these systemic issues, but also, you know, three to 400 years of discipling an entire race of people to believe certain things about themselves. And it was in many ways, like the historical study of this, very wise and effective in, in many of the methods that they used and and so just in, in that could you speak to I mean you know obviously Vermont being a black a black man your kids and just obviously your community there at Roosevelt and in and, and any way you can could you speak to a bit of just the the sense of identity that that is within the black community in light of the three to 400 years of, again, you know, not just the systemic, but the discipleship for lack of a better term of this is who you are.
1: Yeah, I think there's, um, I mean, there's solidarity. I think one of the things that makes me sad sometimes for like when I'm in a majority white churches and I think that there's healing to be found in pressing into friendships with other cultures and ethnicities um, is there's a lot of, when you've been through so much suffering and God has met you, there's a lot of solidarity, right? So you don't read the historic, you don't read from the last 100, 200 years of um, writings from African-Americans and see them saying what, what our young millennials are saying when, um, actually that might even be too old now. What's it?
0: (laughs) Gen Z. The Gen
1: Z, Um, I'm dating myself. So, you know, you don't, you don't like, they have, you know, they're suffering and it's like, oh God can't be real, I'm suffering. That's not what you read when when you read about ripped apart bodies and families, you know, marriage vows that had to end with until our slave master separates us and mothers not being able to raise children and you hear you don't, not like just escapist. None of this matters. You hear an amazing faith in a sovereign God who is going to come and judge and restore and redeem and uh, and free. And I think I think that there is just a gift of solidarity that's found um, in wow. in the collective pain of a people. And that's why when you know when George Floyd, we're, so as a family right now. Um, we're walking through, my grandfather is in his last few days of life, and we've been visiting him, spending time every day uh, with him. And so our kid, we were processing, we've had six deaths in our family since mid-February. Uh, so my, my, uh, my grandparents who lived with us died February 12th, 11th and 12th. Um, we had, my husband's aunt died of COVID, she's in New Jersey. Um, we've had, my, my oldest son had two suicides in his cla- uh, friends of his, his, right before graduation and now my gran- my, gran- my grandfather. Um, and, you know, we're just like processing as a family. And my 10-year-old is like, is like we've had so much death, mom. This is the worst year, we've had nine people die. And I was like, yeah, I'm like, it's six. And I list them off and he's like, well, yeah, but then also Amhad, Brianna and, and George. And it's just like, yeah, like, like he's, like our family lamented that and our church lamented that like family because there is the sense of like am i you know is is our older brother next is 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 my dad next and that's not you know that's not just from like us exposing them to media it's from you know the friends who called in the last six days of curfew who are who said hey i'm stuck at so and so's house um i need a ride from one of our white church members to get me back to my house i'm i don't want to drive after curfew and just you know, just, it's just when you're in a communities who have this a shared sense of suffering, um, it brings solidarity. It's not to say that there's agreement, right? There's you know within the, I mean the Black community and the Hispanic community are very diverse in terms of political opinion, explaining things. Uh, prescribing solutions to the problem, like we might even, there might even be agreement on the problems, but lots of different solutions prescribed. So it's not to say that there's there's agreement, but there is something about your faith being formed in the midst of a furnace in which Jesus is real, and he carries you through that, um, that I think is a, a huge gift for the church as a whole. And I actually think at this point of, um, you know, American Christianity, really struggling. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but most of my friends I grew up with do not, are not, not in the church anymore. And their struggles with faith, I don't, I don't, I don't want to say I haven't had some, you know, I haven't had those shared struggles, but some of it is, there's just a different heritage of, of, um, Jesus in suffering that's passed down to you. If you're coming from a Latin American background, or the African American church—that I think that I think the whole church needs right now. Oh,
0: that's super. Um, hey, Rand, do you want to? Um, Rand, Dene, Dene, Rand, uh, will, you, uh, will you? ask your question.
3: Sure. Um, and this one gets a little bit into politics, but I'm asking it primarily because I don't usually want to get into politics. So I find it increasingly hard to have conversations about race and especially all of current events with friends who seem to filter every conversation through the lens of their conservative politics. Um, for instance, if conservative media has painted Black Lives Matter marches as anti-Trump, then there's just no openness to even considering that there could be anything good about those protests because it goes against the political viewpoint. And they can't separate politics from racial issues that Christians should be addressing. And it seems like conservative political correctness, as I think David French called it in a recent... Um, post that he wrote. It just shuts the conversation down. And I'm wondering, is that a a case where you just have to basically just let it go because there is an openness? Or is there a way to sort of circle around the politics to get at the issue with people? Or do you have to have those conversations in tandem? Are they inseparable?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So personally, I invite them to join me. So that's my favorite thing, like go to a protest and say, hey, come with me. Um, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: We probably had I think now we are saying today maybe 200 people over the last 10 days. I mean, it's been groups of 15, 20, 30 go to protest with us and we talk 15 minutes ahead of time, debrief them after with an email. Um, you know, I think, I mean, I, I do think that's a really helpful way to engage people. You think that? I don't think that. Hey, are you up to go check it out together and see and, and talk about it? Um, so let me know. How, if you do that, email me. I want to hear the story. Um, I also, I do think that, um, there is, I mean, it is our political polarization is so, so, so strong. Like it is just, um, uh, it's, it's, it's severe, you know? So I think on all ends, right? So I think there is that, um, the fear of saying the wrong thing and being labeled, um, I don't know that they're there. Yeah. I think, I think that there is a huge political polarization right now. And so, I mean, I would encourage you to read Bonhoeffer um, right before world war two more to try to pick up on um, the ways in which he was addressing and engaging the very polarized nation. Um, You know, there's a lot, there's just so much dehumanization going on. So I think when, when people are, when you get into that space, I try to ask a lot of questions like, um, you know, so what do you think, what do you think they're, like, to try to help expose, like, in asking questions, it doesn't take usually, by the third question, you could usually expose what they think of that person. Um, you know, but usually by the second question, I'll hear, like, well, black, got you know, we just need black people to be fathers, right? And it's like, so do you not know any black fathers? Like, how? what black people do you know? Oh, three? Are they not father? Are they not, you know, so I just, I just think, like, trying to help people communicate their own worldview and dig a little bit um, is usually the best thing. And then usually it doesn't take long for them to say something really kind of scary. And then like, I think that begins to be the fertile ground that you can say, okay, um, let's talk a little bit about that piece. Um, How do you think you developed that world? Like, where do you think that idea came from? Um, Where did you, where did you first see that? Oh, if it was from the news, why do you think the news... Portrays it that way. What? 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 What could be? Could there be any hidden motive or agenda? Now, if they're just angry and not willing to engage, then I just see that as a spirit closing a door. Um, but I think sometimes I don't think we can. when this is, you know, when you're dealing with systemic racism, it's this is spiritual. It's spiritual warfare. You're uncovering deep dark lies. Um, that have been embedded and passed down for 400 years. It doesn't just, you can't rationally explain it away. Um, it has to somehow prick people's hearts and the spirit has to convict. And so if you can move it from, let's go back and forth on each other's facts and fake news uh, to like examine, like helping them go inward and examine where they got their worldview from, how they put it together. Sometimes that's, and, and I would say where I think that's important. Because I do think we're, we're moving in a direction of dehumanizing each other so much that we could be setting ourselves up for some real violence against each other. And the more we, work we can do right now, even in a one-on-one relationship, to help rehumanize, you know, whether it's rehumanizing the Trump, the Trumper or rehumanizing the Black Lives um, Matter person, um, that's really, really imp- I think that's, like, I think it's vital right now to, to the future of, what's coming in the next six to 12 months.
3: Yeah. That's really helpful, thanks.
0: Um, Kaylee has a quick question and then we'll go down to JM. I, I think, think want, we should do that one first.
2: First.
0: It, yeah. Kaylee's making an executive decision, good call. Um, JM, I don't see your uh, picture, so I'll read it for you if that's all right, unless you pop your screen on and then you can ask it, but, um, oh, I'd rather not, I should have read, I'd rather not get on screen, perfect, okay. Um, So as a member of the unchurched and getting here after years of watching the church be on the wrong side of history, especially as it pertains to matters of racism, at what point do we get more bold and aggressive on calling out white evangelicals who have held the voting power and continue to be enablers to systems of government that actively harm our communities? I'm finding far more implicit and explicit racism from friends within the church, as opposed to those who are not faith-based. This is a slap in the face, which is... Warranted,
1: anyways so there you go yeah um so can you sorry you're on this last question right vince yeah my, my internet cut out part of what you were saying
0: oh sorry yeah um, you're,
1: you're on jm's question that's Isn't right church? okay yeah mm-hmm. um can you guys hear me or is my internet choppy hey, you great okay. um so one is i love to tell um my unchurched friends when they, that the church, um, has been very present on the right side of history. You just have to look to the black church. Um, there's an amazing faithful witness and, um, one of the pushbacks, you know, I've gone, I've had with my friends, and it's been very fruitful is when they label the white evangelicalism, the church. Right. And it's just like, no, there's a long 400 year history of African-American, Um, men and women, churches, pastors, um, church members doing substantial work. Um, So it's not to say it's perfect, right? Like, or that there isn't all kinds of problems, but there is a real, real prophetic witness from the margins anywhere in human history all over the world. Where the church does struggle consistently is when it's in power and when it has political power globally, historically, the church does not seem to thrive when it has power. It seems to—I'm um, sure someone could probably argue that, argue me on that, but and I, yeah, I could, I could probably nuance that a little bit. But it does—it does seem like the strongest prophetic witnesses we have are from the margins. Um, and so, so I do think that if you are a white evangelical, or you're in a, or you're coming from that place. Um, I don't think we can call out. Okay, so calling out the white evangelicals who have held the voting power. Okay, so I do think that's why the church right now actually has to not necessarily just talk about racism. We have to talk about it within the church. So we have to ask our friends. So this is what's really hard is in in, um, we we do actually need people to vote differently. Like, I'm not even talking presidential elections, like local elections, community, Um, we need people to get, so so something that's happening right now in Phoenix, for example, is for the last eight years of work, people have been working hard, Christians. And so right now we have Christians on chambers of commerce and uh, city councils and school boards and, police, you know, pol- have become police chiefs. And we have Christians from our churches connected through all kinds of work happening in our city. And um, and so we need actual change. And so we needed people to vote to get some of those people in the places that they're in. Um, and it's really hard because our often we have such a spiritual idea that we don't, and we, and we haven't been impacted by the physical harm of a community when we begin to ask people to actually use their power, whether it's voting or whatever, it, it, it just gets it gets funny really fast right um, So I would say like the church right now does have to not just talk about white like white power and you know racism as a whole, but like how have we seen it within our church and then it's always most helpful anytime you're confessing to start with yourself. Here's how I've participated. here's been my part of it. And from that place, you can then lead a community through, through confession and repentance. Um, and if we can do that, that's going to be really powerful. And then, that's, and then we have to say, okay, then what are our brothers and sisters saying they need from us? Oh, our Hispanic churches or our black churches are saying they need this from us? Well, it makes no sense. I care about these other issues more. But in this moment, I'm going to listen to my brother or sister, and I'm going I'm I'm to steward my that, that part of my power of vote. In, in that direction i'm not so much talking and I, I, I think that really really matters locally i think it gets the more macro you go the funnier it gets but it is really really important on a local level um, and then yes it's um it is more present um i agree i think that part i, I think that Racism has always been more present in the church than outside of the church. The, the 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 American church, and part of our distortion theologically that we've been pushing, you know, trying to reform, is the American church um, in a lot of ways, perpet, you know, founded, perpetuated, and supported uh, theologically, uh, slavery, segregation, you know, segregation, uh, Jim Crow, and um, all the way up to today so it's it's our 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 addiction our American values of being committed to life liberty and the pursuit of happiness and our Bibles have been we've been we've had a synchra- the, what's, the, what's the word give me the pastor word then synchra- syncretistic yes
2: yeah.
1: yes we've had a syncretistic faith so may, mainly we've married value, cultural values that are gifts from God but we've made them idols to biblical values, and because we've enmeshed them, we've then done a lot of harm, um, and then we've also had a lot of, like, the, the evangelical church has had a lot of power, um, and so I think we have to find ways to address that locally within our, within our relationships, to live into that, um, to own it in our own, you know, in our own space. One of the most humbling things for me to watch is my husband, I mean, I, I don't like it, honestly, but I really respect my husband for it is is when he, I mean, having been called every name in the book uh, for talking about race as a black man by white evangelicals that he baptized and did marriage counseling with and, you know, did the midnight we're getting divorced calls with, like, for years, I and mean, then he's about race and gets treated terribly, that he can then come back and start with confessing ways he could have pastored and led better um, and start, it doesn't mean he doesn't get to their own, you know, to, 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 it doesn't mean you don't then address your brother or sister's sin, that you have, if we don't start with ourselves. And I think there's a lot of power sometimes, especially when you're the one who's maybe more harmed. Um, it's scarier to be the one to lead in that way, but somehow God uses the weak parts of the body to lead the strong. And I just think that's part of how God restores and heals. Um, so sorry, that's an all over the place answer. That's a really good question. Um, I don't know if there's anything else you want to add to that, or
0: yeah, feel free to uh, yeah. If there's a clarifier or something on, on that question, just want to come in now in that moment. I'll just say, you know, I, in regard to not doing more, this is not just a church thing. This is the people of God thing. You know, we see Israel struggle with the moment you know the the moments where they were back up on top it just always crumbled you know mm-hmm. um the prophets would come out you think of amos you, you think of isaiah and just the the railing on the people of god that this will all crumble and the reason it's going to crumble is because you, you don't honor me and especially you don't honor me in the way you care for the oppressed you know uh and we've built these up and so we've inherited these realities and i think that was one of the beautiful things, even as you brought up today around Tyler's video was, you know, Tyler as an individual, right? Like if you experience Tyler, like you just, this guy, the best person I know, you know, he's just like a, a, a great person. But then that model, and I know what it's done for me as a, as a fellow pastor, as a friend to say like, okay, this guy's a better person than me. Like on every measure, you know, like measurement I could think of. And he starts with, I've done this wrong. We've done this wrong. And what do we need to do to move forward? And so what I think in that question around on the front end of the the boldness and the the aggressiveness to which we call this out now, um, could you speak a little more just to that part of it? Like, and, and what that looks like, like, how do we, Almost ramp up some of the pressure, but do it in a, in, a, in a Christocentric way.
1: Yeah, I think the best. I mean, I do think there is. Um, I mean, I think it's in multiple ways. So I think um, one, I do think like I like the question. She said something. Um, hang on, I want to read. What? At what point do we get more bold? Uh, Twelve days ago. So I think this is this is uh, this is the moment that we are very bold, um, and there's no no turning back. Um, it's easy right now, kind of even to be bold. Um, it might not always be easy, and so there's a calling happening right now to leave behind and follow Jesus. And once we start that road, you know, we we we, it's, we don't want to turn back. And there's going to be a lot of beautiful fruit being on that journey with Jesus. But it will have it will there's a, there's a, we're at the beginning or at base camp to climb Mount Everest. Right. Um, so I think then to think about the spheres of influence you have, are you a student? Do you have a vocation? Are you an artist? Are you a mom? Are you a brother? Like what are the roles you play and write them all out? Here's the, every space I go, every role I play. And then ask the Lord, like in this season, of American history, what do you, what truth do you want me to bring to bear in these spheres? And how do I be light on this particular point of sin that you're exposing right now? Um, what does that look like? I called a therapist friend and it, you know, hey, how's your, like, what are we thinking about in terms of how ther- therapy, vocation in Phoenix can, um, can, feed into a future where we have a lot more African-American therapists. Um, Hey, you know, cafeteria lunch people, like, what do you think? Like, like what, whatever you've been given to steward, steward it right now and be bold about it. And then I think, you know, we're in a call out culture. um, And I've not seen much fruit from exposing people and calling them out and shaming them. Um, and it doesn't ever satisfy, right? So I think some of it is, okay, in the relationships you have, you know, if if you're on social media, be disciplined, don't like get sucked into it, but like maybe you're gonna give an hour a day to being a beautiful presence on Facebook and engage with every single racist thing you say, when the alarm goes off, you turn it off, and that's part of how you're gonna use social media to pray for people to, you know, to have eyes to see, to ask, offer them to get coffee, to give a winsome, you know, to, to like be aware that you're writing stuff that people who don't, you know, who are really turned off um, by Jesus and the church because of our, because we profane his name with our behavior um, you're writing with them in mind to say, no, like we, we are going to be engaged in this. So, you know, but, but, but like, don't spend eight hours on it. Like being like, use it as a, like, instead of consuming it, and getting enraged by it, use it as one of the places of power that you might engage um, if that's something that you're good at um, and then you know and then and then pick relationships and it's not just we're not just trying to convince people to have a shared worldview on racism. We want them to understand like the I guess back like, the abundant life that we can have in Christ with each other and the fruit of reconciled relationships. And so start living into reconciliation relationally, um, you know, as a church, you know, there's, there's other congregations you can, you can, you know, we can do this congregation to congregation. We do it friends to friends. Um, we do it within our, you know, we do it within our marriages, like, like take seriously, what is it? How do I become a person who can do the ministry of reconciliation? Like I breathe. Um, that's not most of us in that's not that's that's not most of our faith and, um, and and if you do that I think it awakens a desire for other people not just to like not be racist um, but to like be part of this
2: I mean I mean Martin Luther
1: King calls it the beloved community um, the acts too and it's and and to, and to live into that and so that's why we then protest and, and get in, and engaged in you know, police reform or education reform or helping a friend run for city council, because those are all small things that become worthwhile when we're thinking about what it looks like to live in deep communion, communion with each other and give windows into the kingdom of God, uh, through, the, through our work and places that we have influence.
0: That's perfect. That was super helpful. Haley, I have something for you.
2: I mean, I think you touched on it a little bit, but uh, and you and you said it before really beautifully. But what does it look like as as white leaders or members or friends or children or sisters brothers face to really link arms and advocate for? So you said earlier, what does it look like my voice to take risks in those spaces um, versus someone of color and a black and brown person? and we love the risk that they take in that. So how can we be that healthy, intermediate advocate plan so it's not on our neighbors to just share their experience, right? How do we intercede in that? So I think you were sharing ways. Um, But, yeah, I don't know any additional, like, our, our responsibility in not being complicit in racism in the church with our neighbors.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you know, there's all kinds of great ideas, I think right now that are floating around. And I think the hard work is, is just learning the history that we just aren't taught in school, teaching it to your kids. Um, I remember when um, the Charleston mur- murders happened, the Charleston Nine, and um, a family that I love who adopted, white family adopted black kids explaining why uh, they they aren't going to tell their girls about it, right? They want to protect – or actually, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm combining stories. This was just a white family. Hadn't adoption. <laughs> I have a lot of adoption stories <laughs> also. Yeah. But this is a white yeah. family about how they didn't want to – you know, their kids were the same age as my kids at that point, which was young,
2: and they didn't want
1: to impact their innocence. And, I mean, our kids worship in church with us on Sundays, and our church wept over it, um, our congregation definitely imagine scenarios when you see this happen of it being your church. And you know, how many churches in Phoenix do you, do you have to pick from if you're going to go do something crazy? There's not too many that look like ours. Um, and, and it was just this moment where I remember telling that, that person that this per- you know, I really care about them. You know, that's a, that's a huge luxury you have to protect your five and eight year old. From something that we can't protect them from, um, they're gonna know about it, um, and it's costly to help your kids realize that things are not all right in the world. And um, I don't like I don't like my kids. Uh, Howard Thurman talks about the this veil this the uh, he calls it the curtain of protection. He Howard Thurman mentored Martin Luther King. He was one of his uh, professor uh, theological mentors, and he was a pastor and. early 1900s or like 1920s and he talks about the veil of protection that um, when you're segregated as communities you can live um, you know a a community that you can live a false a false reality Um, or it is a reality in your world but it might not be behind behind that curtain of protection to this other world and he says for for little ones the way you protect them and keep them alive is to pierce their ears when they're young, when they're mm-hmm. babies, so that they can hear and see the, the real world they're living in. Because if they don't learn how to adapt to the violence around them, they don't learn the rules, uh, they're not gonna live. And the, the the pain and the gift of having your ears ears pierced young. So we need white parents to pierce their kids' ears. And I, I know that's painful, I know that's wow. hard. Um, but we don't, you know, we don't need white parents saying, oh, you're going to have a harder time getting into college because you're white. Like, that's not what we need. Um, and that's where we are. My kids are at a very, div- you know, very, very diverse school. And it's for, I mean, my daughter's is like, you know, she's already off school for COVID. But like, it's our, our teens are not having the same conversations adults are having right now. Um, they're having very scary conversations and saying very foolish things. Um, and it's all through Snapchat and my, my daughter's like, I don't want to go back to school. Right. So, um, and this is a school who takes the stuff really seriously and has been training, but you're talking about, you know, our nation is bubbling up. Um, it's all, there's so much right below the surface. So I think, I think your kids is a really big, a really big place. Um, you know, that there's hope to change. Um, and yet we have to live within the brokenness of the world that we're in. Um, and then, yeah, just I would say for the rest of your life, read some kind of book, uh, you know, whether it's by a African American author or um, a history book. You know, what, if you read a book a year or a book a week, like whatever your pace is, just have something, you know, by your bed that you read a couple pages a night. And I think it's it'll, it's pretty talent. History can speak for itself once you immerse yourself in it. You don't have to get a PhD in it, but just be disciplined to learn. And, uh, and do it through the le- and If you want it to be a spiritual exercise, do it through the lens of the black church, and you'll be really enriched spiritually.
0: Um, could you talk about uh, just, we're going to start winding down here. Um, and uh, yeah, Tessa, uh, um, let's get to Tessa's question. This is a great question. And, um, and so if you can answer that one, then I've got some for you, and then we'll, we'll, we'll wrap up. But so, how does godly repentance look different than awkward white guilt? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Tessa's as awkward as it gets, um, uh, <laughs> so, um, but yeah, so we talk about, uh, that discrepancy and the
2: differences there.
1: Yeah. So one, I would say we should be very comfortable with guilt and feeling guilty. Um, it's, um, it's just a normal I mean, it's just, we are very guilty people. This is why, we, this is why we're so thankful for Jesus, right? Like, we're not, we're not we don't have to be, um, when we're uncovered, we feel shame. And whatever that, so when I think of like white, you know, the, some of the language that you're hearing now is white fragility or white guilt or whatever, awkward white guilt. Um, it, it's, it's not being guilty that's the problem. It's trying to hide and cover with something other than Jesus. And the gift of letting Jesus Um, and his aloe, his healing, his love um, cover you is you don't need to say the right thing to not offend the person. You can take a very humble posture. You can feel crappy about hurting someone's feelings and go back and say you feel crappy about it. Um, We've had some church members, some white church members um, who called my husband in tears because they're afraid to ask him the question they want to ask him. And that's beautiful. It's like, that's, that's real relationship, right? That you don't want, we don't want to hurt each other, but we do. So I think, I think there is just to get, to not, to not be the, to not confuse repentance with awkward white guilt. We just have to be comfortable with feeling guilty. Um, and then letting take that, that fuels our prayers, our conversations with the Lord, our conversations with each other as we're um, re articulating the gospel one to another, um, uh, the goal of the Christian life is, is so much more than just not being guilty, right? Um, so then repentance is behavior change. And that's where I think um, godly sorrow is being able to name the things that we've done. Especially the further we get away from it, the easier it is to name and use those as teaching points, um, you know, in your, you know, in your own life and your future and how you talk to your kids about where you were wrong and how, how God spoke to you and how he's, how he's used others to uncover and help you. Um, that's all, it's all God's grace. None of that is shame. None of that is judgment. Like God, God revealing and exposing. It's the light of love. He's exposing it in. There is no shame. It's. It is, it is being brought out for our good, for, for us to have his love encounter those deeper places and for for each other to be able to sink deeper into one another. Um, and then I would think if you, if you begin to think about um, power and what you have to steward and how do you leverage that for the long haul, for change. And so the news is going to die down. The majority of people are not going to think about this until the, until the next news cycle. Um, and I guess I would just really encourage us to not be those people and to really long for um, being in reconciling communities. And so um, that, that gets practiced at the most local level. So being deeply committed in local, you know, in Christian friendships and practicing you don't need to have different ethnicities to not like each other and need to reconcile. Right. So practicing that deep kind of pushing into painful, you know, to, to, to to church life and, um, living into that and then learning how to do that cross-culturally, um, is going to be part of the behavior change we need.
0: It's awesome. Um, the last thing I wanted to bring up was if you, and honestly there's like 15 more (laughs) questions, uh, you know, that I would love to (laughs) just, have you on there for the next couple hours but i know you should sleep at some point in your life so um we just talked about az churches standing stand together march and it, you know as this and i didn't get a chance to attend we we ended up being part of a some protests up here in flagstaff and we threw a barbecue and did some different things and um and so didn't make it down but I, you know i've seen videos can you just talk a little bit about that and being part of that and what are some of your takeaways from that that could encourage the church here and and just even us as a city and a community?
1: Yeah, so we did last Tuesday um, Redemption Alhambra, Roosevelt, and All, All Souls is a multi-ethnic uh, Anglican church planting in our actual in our church, but the same church building we worship in. They're using our building at night, so they'll be downtown at some point. Um, and uh, just had the, kind of three African-American and pastors um, lead that, so it kind of be part of that. This vision of saying, "Let's come together and do a night of lament," and then we, and then it began to quickly grow. And um, it was just kind of, we went from thinking a couple hundred people were going to come to realizing thousands are going to come, and hundreds of churches are going to be represented. So then we quickly shifted it to say, "Okay, come bring a sign of confession." Like repentance and confession are two very different things, right? Um, Confession is naming what you've done wrong. That's what most of us have done so far. Repentance is a journey in which we turn away. That's the confession part, and then we, um, you know, we stop doing something and we start doing something else, right? We stop sinning against God and we start following His laws of love and His ways of righteousness. Um, so, so we had people come with signs of confession and we had thousands thousands of people there. It was beautiful. And we worshiped, we prayed together. um, And we decided that's probably the only night we're gonna do that. Um, Because what our African-American pastors are saying they need is not us to go meet and pray, but to come join the protesters and pray among them, to be walking with them. To be going to the forums and the community here, and you know the hearings we're having right now with the police and school districts, and um, and to, and to sit and to be present and to pray, and so every night since then we've had um, we've invited these churches who came and prayed and confessed and sang and worshipped um, to join us in bringing being that prayerful presence in the protests, and some of them have been pretty intense. Um, I had a pastor from Hillsong lean over to me and he's like, uh, this is kind of scary. Um, I'm like, yep, I, I feel you. <laughs> um, and, um, and most have been, you know, most of them have been amazing. And, and by the way, some of the intense ones were, were mostly young, white, skinny, uh, kids, um, youth, young adults, um, who were coming in kind of an anarchy, throwing bottles, um, and not following the leadership of, of African-American and Hispanic pastors who have been doing this stuff for a very long time, so um, and, and community organizers. So um, so the first few nights was just trying to get people to follow the leadership of what's in place. But I would say, yeah, so anyway, so anyway it's, um, it's been really good. There's eight churches that are kind of spearheading it. Um, obviously, Wayne, you guys maybe have heard Wayne or Aaron preach up there, I don't know, um, but Redemption Alhambra. Is their leadership is so significant in our city, um, and and uh, yeah, just been it's you know Roosevelt always loves when we get to do stuff with Redemption, so um, it was a real gift to to do that together. And I would say, and I would say, you know, four years ago when some of this happened, um, you don't have to just. Um, You know, sometimes early on at Roosevelt, we'd have people who'd make their way to our church because we're diverse. And I do think that we sometimes, that that it's actually important right now that we dig deep into the places that we are. And we learn how, there's lots of different ways to grow in being cross-cultural and multi-ethnic. And um, we need people to do that in whatever space they're in right now. And so it was actually a real gift to have some of these larger suburban all-white churches come down and, and join.
0: Yeah. Love it. Um, so a couple of things as we wrap up and then we're just going to pray, uh, for, for a few minutes here at the end. Um, I want to invite you, you know, like, uh, Danae said, she's going to submit some resources and I want to at least challenge you to consume, I'm going to say two of them. I'm going to ju- I'm going to push the bar up to two of the mm-hmm. things that she sends out for us to, whether it be a podcast, uh, be it a book, um, to take at least two and say, you know, I'm going to commit myself and one other person to read uh, to read these with, right? So you'll you'll read those two, and then you'll invite someone else to read two of them as well, and, and just really encourage you to do that. One thing that is pretty neat is University uh, Press. You know, University, a college organization uh, that does ministry on campus. Uh, they have a um, a publishing house called IVP and University Press, and they have just um, allowed free access to 50 of their books that are specifically on this topic of of racism and injustice. Um, And there's some amazing, amazing books on there. And they're, again, they're free. So we'll send that link out as well. So you can access some of those. Um, And then one of the things we're asking is that if you do choose to access one of those books for free. So today I downloaded one that was, I was going to buy anyway, that was $16. Um, Would you take that money and then donate it to an organization that is on the front lines in this work as well. And then consider upping that donation if you would, but that's a piece of this too, is for us to literally put our money where our mouth is in that as well. So, um, so- Drake is you know, that list? What's that? I need to email you. Um, Cause there's
2: some people on here we don't have their emails. So if, oh. if we're, if you don't no, want, if, if, us. You, if you want to go to, so if you guys go to Facebook, uh,
1: we well, can find me on Facebook. Um, and then you can also find Arizona Churches Stand for Black Lives. And there, I think the top post is a next steps page, and there are um, places to donate. Now, I Vince, you might have more. I don't know if there's like a Flagstaff uh, equivalent of our African American clergy coalition. Um, so you might have a, maybe a. I mean, maybe there's just a historic Black church in Flagstaff that people don't. I don't know. You might want to give direct names, but um, we can even add. We can even add Flagstaff stuff to our list. Oh,
0: uh, sweet.
1: A be
0: right
1: cool, yeah. Um, what
0: like I said. There's a couple. Yeah. There's a couple options up here. We've been trying yeah. to direct people towards. But um, so yeah. So please, if you don't, um, if you want that, li- go and you can access that list. Like um, mm-hmm. <laughs> Kaylee's trying to. I'm trying. It's not working.
2: Right Sorry guys. Um,
0: if you want to email me, if we don't have your contact information, I'll put my email down there and. Um, mm-hmm. You can, I keep sending it to Josh private. Sorry.
2: <laughs> no, I keep sending it to, to Andy. So this is
0: fine. wonderful. Um, okay, so I'm sorry about that. So anyway, feel free to email me. You see it there. Um, we'll be putting things on our social media on the website. Um, we'll probably even just link over to uh, the content that, that Danae and their team put together as well. So, um, you know, just for a moment, just to, to really please, uh, you know, if you guys do the reactions on the bottom there and thank Danae that way, or just unmute yourself and say thank you and start clapping. But um Danae's, you know, we said this in a couple of the posts, she, she and her husband, Vermont and Roosevelt, they have very much shaped even Redemption Flagstaff, but certainly Redemption Church as a whole. Uh, in this space, uh, in foster care and adoption, uh, Denae oversees the Surge Network, which some of you have been on Surge tables. But it's our kind of lay leader development school. That is, uh, how many churches are now involved across the state Denae?
1: Yeah,
0: I don't know. I'm not sure. It's a lot. It's yeah. a lot. <laughs> so, anyway, just to say, it's it honestly was a real privilege to have her time tonight. She's wife and a mother as well. And so, um, again, feel free to to thank her and you can find her on Facebook and thank her that way. But um, Andy, I'm going to have you, uh, if you can pray for, for Danae and Danae, if you wouldn't mind then closing us tonight and just praying for, for the church and, uh, and for our time.